Good morning. It's so great to be here with all of you. I'm Lynn Kitchens, and um, we're going to continue our series on wisdom. I thought since we just had Valentine's Day, it's always fun to do some jokes about love and (laughs) marriage. So I found these on Ted's desk, and so I stole them. So if he tells them on Sunday, just kind of laugh real hard, like you've never heard him before. Okay. These are written by kids. How do you decide who to marry? Alan, age 10, says, you got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like, if you like sports, she should like it that you like sports, and she should keep the chips and dip coming. (laughs) Okay, how do you decide who to marry? Kristen, age 10, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it always before. You get to find out later who you're stuck with. (laughs) What do most people do on a date? Lynette, age 8. Dates are for having fun, and people should use them to get to know each other. Even boys have something to say if you listen long enough. (laughs) What do people do on a date? Martin. On the first date, they just tell each other lies, and that usually gets them interested enough to go on a second date. (laughs) Okay, last one. When's it okay to kiss someone? Howard, age 8. The rule goes like this. If you kiss someone, then you should marry them and have kids with them. It's just the right thing to do. (laughs) How would you make a marriage work? Ricky, age 10. You tell your wife she looks pretty even if she looks like a truck. (laughs) These are our Valentine words of wisdom. We've been looking at wise women. We've been looking through Ecclesiastes, and I've been telling Deb, I've been so grateful because I avoided that book. I didn't understand any of it, so it's so fun to have a little bit of a handle on the blessings that are in that book. Now we're going to look at what it means to be a wise disciple of Christ. And just to kind of get us real quickly into the right uh, age, since we're going from the Old Testament to the New, since the days of Solomon and Ecclesiastes, we know that the people of Israel divided into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, and that's what we studied in the fall, so you all remember that. They um, experienced the great consequences of evil kings and disobedience. They went through captivity, through Assyria and Babylon. And now we're in the book of Matthew. And now we find them under Roman rule. And it has been 900 years since the time of Solomon. All this time, they've been waiting. Waiting for their king. The Old Testament prophecies, the central figure throughout the whole Old Testament was this king who would come and he would rule in God's promised kingdom. And he would have wisdom, he would have power, he would have authority, and he would have the right to reign not only Israel, but to reign the whole world. David called this king in the Old Testament, the coming one, the king of glory, the Lord of hosts. Daniel called him one like a son of man. Isaiah called him mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. Micah said he'll come from Bethlehem and he will rule over Israel. 
Zephaniah said he will be king of Israel, the Lord in their midst. And Zechariah said he would be endowed with salvation. The coming king would be the great man, God, and his kingdom would mean that God would be ruling over the earth. But Isaiah says that before he comes, there will come a man to announce this king. His name was John. He would be one crying out, a voice in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And you read how he wore camel hair. He had a leather belt. He ate locusts and honey. And I've been thinking, if you're going to eat locusts, it's a good thing you've got a little bit of honey. (laughs) Maybe you dipped them in the honey. Jesus would later say he was the greatest man that ever lived. And I think he was the greatest man that ever lived because he had the greatest job in the world. The king was here, and I get to announce it to the world. So while the Jewish nation waited, John began to preach. The kingdom and the king you've been waiting for is at hand. So repent. Repent. What in the world did the Jewish nation have to repent of? They had a fine religious system going. They had their synagogues. They had righteous leadership, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They had traditions and laws and rules to govern themselves by. They were the chosen ones of God. They had Abraham as their father. They were the receivers of the promises of God. Why would they need to repent? John's message was to call them away from this self-righteous attitude that they had built up and lived in and to call them out of the corrupt and the dead religious system that had become part of their life. Isaiah had prophesied about this. Look on your verse sheet. The Lord says, These people come to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. So there's this guy in the camel outfit with his leather belt, and he's calling the people. Now he's trying to call them out of Jerusalem, away from these things that they're so connected to. He's calling them out of Jericho, out of the cities, come to the wilderness of Judea. Now, how many people are going to do that? Only the people that are really seeking God. Only the people that were open to the words that John was going to speak. They'd be away from distractions. They'd be away from the misguidance of their teachers. Here in the wilderness, they might look inwardly. They might become to understand what it means, John's words, to repent. And it would be in the wilderness that for some of these Jews, for the first time, they would get it. And they would think, my race... My nationality is not enough to save me. It would be in the wilderness that these seekers would discover, I need God. 
And so in the towns, while the Jews are still waiting for their king, their king was walking across the hot sands in the desert of Judea, walking to his cousin John to be announced to the world through baptism so that he could identify with the sinners that he came to save. And as he walked, he carried in his very being the fulfillment of every prophecy that those Jews had memorized in the whole Old Testament. From how he was conceived to where he was born, to his lineage from the tribe of Judah, to being a true son of David. And he would also complete the requirements of being both a ruler and a shepherd to his people, Israel. And the prophets longed to see that day. So when John takes his cousin Jesus and lifts him out of the water, The grand announcement is made from heaven, from the Father himself. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit of God descends immediately like a dove upon him. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit are in total unity to announce the King is here. The kingdom is at hand. It would not be anything what the Jewish nation was expecting. They are waiting for their political leader to deliver them from the yoke of Rome. Instead, Jesus would be radical. It's hard for us to even imagine how radical he was because we've been reading the word, we've grown up listening, but when Jesus came on the scene, what he had to say And who he was was radical to the Jewish people. He focused on the internal, not the external. He spoke words that pierced their hearts. He did works and miracles that no one could fathom. And we would think, how could you not just fall on your face and follow this man? They were so immersed in what they made religion to be and their own laws, and their own precepts that they didn't recognize their need for God. And so they couldn't recognize God's king. Look at Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. They would have to change who they were. Look at verse 23. And then Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them in large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Okay, here's his little uh, job description just in these verses. It just kind of overwhelms us. What would a disciple of this kind of king look like? And so Jesus gives us the Sermon on the Mount so we can know it was going to be radically different than what anybody would ever think of. And the Sermon on the Mount tells us, 
its different values and ambitions. It shows what life has to be like for a disciple once he's repented and become committed to this king. The Sermon on the Mount is about now. It's a goal for us today. It's a goal for all disciples of Christ, but it's also about the not yet. We won't see all of it fulfilled until um, eternity in the reign of God. His words brought joy that they had been greatly lacking under the burdens of what they were carrying. It brought meaning. It brought purpose. It just filled their empty hearts, and it does the same things for us today when we listen to the words of our king. So we're wise to sit on the hillside listening to his words, and as his disciples, we're wise to realize how much we need God. I got to actually go to this area. Um, Rob, if you put that on, this is um, a great example of where the Sermon on the Mount probably took place. This is along the Sea of Galilee. That's the Sea of Galilee you see in the background. And you can see how there were areas where it would be perfect for Christ to sit. So we're going to leave that slide up there because um, I want us all to pretend we're sitting on that grass, listening to Jesus and getting to have that privilege. The mountains along there are more like really big hills, but when we were there, we climbed this one, and it, it was a tall one. It was rocky. It was really hot. I remember walking and walking, and Ted's like trying to make us hurry along, and there was an elderly woman, woman with us, and Ted was like, she's fine. She's <laughs> we kept walking, walking, and finally he was walking next to her, and he said, how old are you? And she said, 81. And we were like, oh my gosh, because we were just running up this mountain. She made it. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is climbing a Galilean mountain near Capernaum. Many, many years before, Moses climbed a mountain. It was Mount Sinai. He received the law from God to give to the people Israel. And the people Israel were not able to keep their covenant with God. And now a greater Moses ascends a mountain to teach the people about the kingdom of God, a new law for a new people on a new mountain by a new Moses, and they will be written on our hearts, not on stone. Look at Jeremiah 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Look at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 5. When he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He sat down as any great rabbi would do. If a rabbi was standing or walking, speaking, it was sort of unofficial teaching. The minute a rabbi sat down, those were the words that had great authority. Jesus sits down. His divine chair the hillside that he created. And around him are his disciples. 
I think that the disciples were the ones who were receiving his teachings. It's very purposeful. It's not like he's just preaching to a big crowd. This is about, you want to follow me. You want to be a disciple. Let me tell you about what that looks like. So I think he's speaking to people who really were following him, probably more than just the 12 disciples at this point. Later on, the multitude that he left behind, I think, followed him up and got to hear a lot of his words. It says he opened his mouth. Those are um, words that's pretty obvious when you're going to talk. You open your mouth. When they write that down, it means you better be listening. These are some really important things that are about to be said. And what came out of Jesus' mouth was life-changing. I've been thinking about that word. I think we use it, that phrase, life-changing, pretty loosely today. Someone read a book, it, was, it changed my life. Um, I went here, it changed my life. I did this, Ted will say, sometimes I ate a piece of pie that changed my life. <laughs> I think sometimes they change things in our life, but they don't necessarily change our life. The words of Christ, we're going to change their lives. He was going to teach principles foreign to the legalism and the judgment they'd been learning from their leaders. Because what's the first thing when he opens his mouth? He begins with blessings. They're used to burdens and put some heavy stuff on me so I can be even sadder how I've got to try to please God. Uh, A light came into the darkness. Another prophecy that Christ fulfilled. It was light to hear the words that Christ had to speak. He starts with the Beatitudes, a new approach to living. It brings joy instead of despair, peace instead of conflict. In fact, blessed means happy, happy in God, if you follow as this kind of a disciple. These could not be products that the Pharisees could produce. It could not be their own righteousness because Jesus gave worth to an inner attitude that was absent in the Pharisees' and Sadducees' hearts. The world's happiness looks different than the happiness Jesus was about to talk to about. The world tells us happy are the rich, happy are the successful, happy are the beautiful, happy are the powerful. But we're listening to the king, and the king's road goes a different route to happiness. And when we first read the Beatitudes, we think happy are the sad, those who mourn, those who are poor, those who are hungry, and we think, okay, not a happy thought for me. That's what's so great, because we don't have to do what the world says when we follow the internal things in Christ. The outward happiness will come. I squished in four little lines next to the pronouncements of the king. Here's the first word on it, internal. The Beatitudes show that happiness comes internally by God. The second little word, try to fit this in, is attainable or true. You could just write true. These are pronouncements Christ is about to give. They're not possibilities. They have not had happiness. They've had some maybe possibilities of happiness, 
What Christ is going to talk about is true, attainable things of happiness in our life. Third word, it's eternal. The reason Christ's happiness is eternal is, guess what? It's not produced by the world, and it's not produced by circumstances, so it can't be taken away by bad circumstances and by things in the world. And fourthly, the blessings of happiness are progressive. We're going to see that the Beatitudes will each lead to the other in a logical succession, beginning with the inner man and moving to the outer actions. And may I just say this, although we don't have time to look at it all, every Beatitude fulfills a prophecy of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. So if you ever have time, go back and look some of those up. It's pretty fun. Okay, Matthew 5. We're going to start with 5.3, and we're going to read these out loud together. And if you have a different version, that's okay. Ready? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit on your outline is to recognize one's spiritual poverty apart from God. To be poor in spirit is to recognize one's spiritual poverty apart from God. This is the first beatitude because this is where true life begins. We can't live until we admit that we are dead. It's the understanding that I have nothing to bring to the table. My hands are empty. I have nothing I deserve. I am spiritually destitute. It's a good place to be. Totally not what the Pharisees and Sadducees would have thought. It's a good place to see that apart from God, I am impoverished. Look at Isaiah 66. This is the one I esteem, declares the Lord. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Jesus told a parable. He had a crowd of his self-righteous people when he was walking. And so he thought, I'm going to tell you a parable about a Pharisee and a tax gatherer. Now, a tax gatherer was thought to be the, the sinner of all sinners because basically they got wealthy by cheating everybody else. They come to um, a temple, and the Pharisee stands up and prays, extolling his virtues. And then he looks at the tax gatherer and says, and thank you that I'm not like this sinner, this tax collector. And Jesus said, but the tax gatherer was not even willing to lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast and he cried, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what's amazing is he says to these people listening, it was the tax gatherer who was justified in the eyes of God. They were shocked. They were shocked to even imagine that God would honor a tax gatherer over them. But Jesus said, whoever exalts himself shall be humble. Whoever humbles himself, that's who God will exalt. The religious leaders had piled interpretation upon interpretation to the law so they could figure out a way to manage religion in the flesh. These were known as the Talmud, these rules. They were a commentary on the law. And really, in most of the Jews' minds, they surpassed the law of God, these little rules 
made by men. And in them, they made a fatal error of thinking that God was less holy than he was and they were more holy than they were. That's what rules can do to us. They lived under the illusion that they were sufficiently righteous to please God. I can't remember trying to figure that out, and you all probably do in your life. I was a young teenager, and I'd just gone through confirmation. And I remember, I totally remember standing in this church when it was over and looking around and thinking, how am I any different than I ever was after this confirmation uh, ceremony? And then I thought, what does it take to get to God? And this is so sad. So I thought, I guess I'm a Protestant and I'm an American. That must be enough. <laughs> I remember that was a big illusion. I had to humble myself later to realize I didn't have anything to offer God. I was empty. On the hillside, across the green grass, the voice of Jesus is compelling his disciples to embrace Humility. What a new thought for them. We can't begin the Christian life without humility, and we can't live the Christian life with pride. The great news is those who come to the Lord with broken hearts don't leave with broken hearts. Look at Isaiah 57. For this is what the high and lofty one says I live in a high and lofty place. This is God speaking. But I also live with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. We dwell with God when we have that kind of a presence and a spirit. Have you created your own kingdom? A way to please God. I think we've all done that at times in our life. And guess what? We realize pretty quick it doesn't make us happy. Emptiness is what makes us happy. And giving up our own kingdom, we get to inherit the kingdom of God and all the abundant things that come with that kingdom. I wrote on your outline, happy are the empty because they will be filled with God. All right, verse 4, read with me. Blessed are those who mourn. Let's all read out loud. I'll start over. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Great. On your outline, to mourn is to possess a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. This is a sorrow over sin, a godly sorrow over sin. A disciple of Jesus has to know that sin is serious. When faced with their sins, they mourn for what it is, but then they go to God for comfort, and he is there. Look at 2 Corinthians. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. The only sorrow that brings spiritual life is a godly sorrow. And this word, mourn here, there's nine different terms the Greek used for mourn, starting with the simplest, maybe I'm a little blue, to the deepest. And this word mourn is the very deepest. It's a heartfelt inner agony 
It's a grief. It's the word used when Jacob thought his son Joseph was killed by wild animals. It's the word used when the disciples were mourning the death of Jesus Christ. This isn't a blessing to feel that mourning in one way. The blessing comes when we go to God with it. The blessing comes in God's response to our sorrow over our sin. Only mourners over sin are happy because only mourners over sin have their sins forgiven. I remember uh, Daryl and Marie Holden talking about this once. And most of you know them. He was our life stage pastor for a few years, and now they're serving God in Michigan. And, and Daryl and Marie had just started dating. And they, Marie told me the story of, you know, she was nervous, and you know how your first date, and you don't know how to act, what to do, you want to do everything right. And they were sitting on a couch watching a movie together, and all of a sudden Daryl took his, his arm and his hand, and he laid it on the couch like this, <laughs> next to Marie. And she, she said she looked down and went, just kept watching the movie. And Daryl did the movie, kept watching the movie, and finally said, I want you to hold my hand. <laughs> And she was like, oh, okay. It sort of reminded me, when we're so nervous about being a good Christian and doing the right things, and then I go to God, and we're all happy together, and God is just waiting there for us to face our sins and then go to him to be comforted where he can love on us. He doesn't want us to try to do the right things. He wants us to realize what we're not doing right so he can wait and comfort us and meet our need in that place. Look at James 4. Come near to God, he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. The word mourn here is is a continuous action, and that tells us something else as his disciples. Do we ever make it? Do we ever get to a place where we're never going to sin again, and here I am, I've arrived? Mourn here means continually repent, continually go to the arms of God, and he will comfort you. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't know about you, but nothing feels more comforting than being cleansed, than being forgiven, and being loved. The mark of a mature disciple isn't sinlessness. It's an awareness of sinfulness. Happy are those on your outline who grieve over their sins because they will find healing in the arms of God. Okay, Matthew 5, 5, read with me. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. On your outline, being meek or gentle is to surrender yourself under God's control. Jesus' audience, they knew how to act spiritually proud and very spiritually self-sufficient. And they believed when that Messiah did come, they would be greatly commended for their goodness. So, 
that one day this Messiah would just give them their rightful place in the world, a position above all other people because they were chosen of God. So as they waited for their king, they did this waiting to see him come in power, with fanfare, with aggressiveness, with might, like a military leader. And guess what? He came in a stable. He came through a virgin. He was raised as a carpenter. He lived in the mundane town of Nazareth. He washed feet. He spoke gently without retaliation. And he died on a tree between two common thieves. A crucifixion was considered odious to the Jewish community. The idea of a meek Messiah leading meek people was not a concept that the Jewish nation would ever have been able to grasp. Look at Philippians 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. The meek person surrenders under God's control, just as Jesus did. And meek here really does mean gentle, and it means a soothing medicine, or a soft breeze, which I love to picture Christ like that in people's lives. Paul used it to describe Christ. He called him the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul used it also to entreat us as his disciples to also treat others gently as Jesus did. Ephesians 4, I left it off your sheet, says this. Live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Be completely humble and gentle, bearing with one another in love. The first beatitude, poor in spirit, focuses on our sinfulness. This beatitude, meekness, focuses on God's holiness and placing our passions underneath it. When we walk with the king, we walk under the rule of our king, and we will inherit the earth. One day there'll be judgment. Those who have proudly resisted God will find there's not a place for me in his kingdom. The meek alone will be left to inherit the earth. On your outline, happy are those who are God-controlled because They will reign with God when he reclaims his earthly domain. Okay, verse 6, ready? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. On your outline, to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to possess a holy ambition. We were created to be satisfied by God, Pursuing his righteousness is a disciple's holy ambition. We seek satisfaction in God, and that is a mark of a true disciple. We belong to the king, and we hunger and thirst for the king's righteousness and choose not to satisfy 
our own selfish desires. I read about these two men. They were stranded on a desert in the Sahara. Their truck broke down. They came real close to dying. They were out there three weeks in the Sahara, slowly running out of water. You get to a place, if you've been without water for too long, where you'll drink just about anything. And so they talk about getting the radiator, the rusty water in the radiator, and trying to live off of drinking basically this poison. And I thought, you know, that's kind of what the world does. We are born with a spiritual thirst, but let's quench it with other things. Let's try to quench it with money or sex or people or power. And it's like spiritual poison that we are drinking. There is no substitute for the living water that Christ wants to offer. David was called a man after God's own heart, and listen to his words. You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My my body longs for you in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. If we choose to be like David, we will not be disappointed. God says here, we will be satisfied. It makes me think of that chorus. I don't know if you guys remember it. We used to sing it more. You, you are my wholeness. You are my completeness. My soul, my thirsty soul, finds rest in the depths of your love. That's the righteousness we pursue. God's righteousness is satisfying. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he said, Hey, I'm the bread of life. Come to me and you won't be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Only I am satisfying. On your outline, happy are those who pursue God because they will be satisfied in their souls. Okay, let's read verse 7. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. The first four Beatitudes dealt with our inner lives. The next four will deal with the outer manifestations of these attitudes. And the days of Jesus were not characterized by mercy. When you're legalistic and you're judgmental, you're not going to show mercy to people. It wouldn't have been a virtue in that day. In fact, remember when Christ told the story, again, he had the the self-righteous people around him, and he said, once there was a man who was beaten up on the side of the road, the story of the Good Samaritan, and the man was robbed and beaten and left for dead, and a priest walked by and passed on the other side of the road and continued, and then Jesus said, and then a Levite walked by and passed on the other side of the road. And it was the Samaritan, the one you Jews look down on, that stopped and helped the man on the side of the road. He's showing them their great lack of mercy in their lives. The more mercy that Jesus showed, the more evident the lack of mercy in the Jewish people at that time became evident. The more he showed mercy, the more determined they were to get rid of him. Have you ever thought about that? When you think about the miracles of Christ, and they'll say, he healed a a man who never walked a day in his life, but he did it on the Sabbath. And what is the first thing the Jewish people think about? Shouldn't have done that on the Sabbath. 
This man is walking who's never walked. Heal a blind man who's never had sight in his whole life. And what was the Jewish nation focusing on? Shouldn't have done that on the Sabbath. Where's his parents? We've got to tell on this guy. Where is mercy? It was not there. The follower of the king is a person of mercy. He healed, he loved, he restored, he found prostitutes, he found sinners, he found the drunk, he brought them in his circle of love and forgiveness, he was patient, he was forgiving, he was sensitive, he wept with those who were sad, and he was a companion to those who were lonely. If we are not a people of mercy, we are not subjects of the merciful king. Luke 6 tells us, be merciful as your father is merciful. And 2 Samuel says, to the kind, God will show himself kind. On your outline, happy are those who treat others like Christ because they will experience the continuing mercy of God. Okay, the next one, I'm going to go real quick because I'm running out of time. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. On your outline, to be pure in heart is to possess a single holy focus. Pure means unmixed, unadulterated. And if we apply that to our heart, it means undivided devotion towards God's righteousness alone. And you and I know, double-mindedness, It can plague the church. It can plague our lives. We want to serve God, but we kind of really want to serve the world. We want parts of God, but we want parts of the world. Christ said, you can't do that. You're going to love one, and you're going to hate the other. The individual that can approach God wholeheartedly is someone whose heart is focused singly on God and God's righteousness. Look at Psalm 24. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And the great blessing is we get to see God when we do that. In fact, the verse is also continual, so it means we will continuously be seeing God. When we have a single focus, the eyes of the soul make God become more visible, so we know him more. We get to be more intimate with him. We have a deeper understanding of him because we're looking at him with spiritual eyes. When we go to a restaurant with our kids, we all know to place Ted, if there's a television in the restaurant, place Ted away from the television because he has a sickness, this illness, and is just... He just can't help himself. He just, if he's walking through the den and, and the TV's on, he just stops and becomes a zombie. In a restaurant, we're trying to keep up with our adult kids and know them more. And, know, and if he's seated where there's a TV just in the background, we can get home and I'll say, how'd you think Tyler was doing on that? Uh, what about Cassie? She sounded excited about that. What? About what? Did he know my kids any better or his kids? No, because his focus was not singular. With us caring more about these little outer things than we do about God, we have divided our attention. We will not have a pure heart before him. 1 John 3 says one day we'll see him and we will recognize him because our hearts have been set on him. 
Now we are children of God. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. All right, let's look at um, the last one, verse 9. Ready? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. On your outline, being a peacemaker produces right relationships between man and man. When we are people that make peace, we are doing something that God does. If you think about it, the whole spiritual history of man is centered in peace. The Bible begins with the Garden of Eden. What kind of relationship was going on there? Peace. Peace with God. And the Bible ends talking about peace eternally with God, a perfect communion. In the middle, man sinned. So what did God do? He sent peace through his son, Jesus Christ. And when we accept his sacrifice for us on the cross, we receive the peace in our hearts that only God can give. The Christian who leaves a path of peace where they walk is leaving a mark of God. It's a special mission God calls us to do while we are waiting to be redeemed. It's the absence of conflict, strife, quarrelsomeness that are all a part of just really wanting to get our own way. It's the presence of righteousness. And when we touch people with the righteousness of God, we get to be called God's children. Shall be called is a future tense, continual, meaning throughout all eternity. The people who had peace between each other will be called God's children. What a great blessing. On your outline, happy are those who promote peace because God calls them his own. Okay, we've been sitting on the mountain a long time now, so I'm just going to leave you with two questions. Have you been to the wilderness and faced your need for God? Have you walked away from your own rules, walked away from a kingdom of your own creation to see your deep need? And secondly, have you let Jesus lead you to the mountainside so that you can find your satisfaction in him and him alone? Because happy is the disciple who lays aside self and sits at the feet of Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, we love you. We love you for your words. And may your words seek deeply into our hearts that we may truly be your disciples and represent you in a dark world. Thank you, Father, that your spirit can do all things through us. And we love you and are grateful for your great love for us. Bless each woman in this room with your presence today. In Christ's holy name, amen.